0: Second week of our series, uh, just a, th- a short three week series, and the series that we're calling, uh, the, the series is called Rich. And uh, the, the foundation of the series is this that in our pursuit as a culture, like generally speaking, as a culture, in our pursuit to become financially rich or to, to get that label on us, whether we place it on ourselves or other people look at us and say, oh, we're rich. It seems that our culture is, is racing toward and trying to grasp this thing called rich. But, my, but, but the foundation of our series is this, that in our pursuit to become financially rich, there are other areas in our lives in which we have become utterly poor. And so what the series is trying to do is we're trying to redefine what it means to be rich. And uh, last week we talked about how as a culture... We are poor with time. We, we rush around. We believe that we're machines designed for the greatest level of efficiency, for the greatest level of production, so that we can ultimately increase our, our bottom line, increase the bottom dollar. And so we, we have starved ourselves of time in pursuit of being rich. And what we talked about then uh, last week is we redefined rich, and we said that, that part of being rich is not just having a fat wallet or a big bank account, But part of being rich and a much larger part of being rich is being rich with time. And and we talked about honoring God through Sabbath in our lives. And uh, we, we talked about how Sabbath is not just this, uh, is, is not a rule book by which we, we have to carry around about what we should or should not do or can or cannot do on a particular day of the week. But rather what we realized from the teaching, teachings of Jesus in Mark chapter 1 is that Sabbath is about establishing rhythm in our lives. That when we, that when we work, we ought to work really hard. Uh, and in fact, we talked about how the Bible says that if you don't work or you won't work, if you won't work, then the Bible says you're lazy. But if you won't rest, the Bible says you're disobedient. That there's this, this rhythm that God has established for us in our lives. And in fact, it's a gift to us. Because we're so prone to believing that we're machines that can run at the greatest level of, of efficiency, day in and day out, day after day, month after month, year after year, that God's gift to us, God's, this Sabbath thing, is actually God's gift to us to help establish rhythm in our rhythmless lives. And so uh, I, I asked you to take three next steps and to consider one of the three. And uh, I hope that these, these were a blessing to you, but I challenged us to, to, to take a walk in the morning or in the evening and, and take time during that walk just to notice the beauty that's around you. Uh, and and as we, I hope that as you were doing that, uh, and just noticing the beauty that surrounds you, that you were reminded of the beauty, the grace, and the majesty of our God. Uh, it, it is difficult to live in such a beautiful place as where we live and not, uh, if we were to really notice, to not recognize the majestic nature of our God. And so I hope that some of you did that. And I heard some reports and emails coming back of some of you that did do that. And uh, I also challenged you to make a meal uh, with friends. And uh, the, the idea was not to uh, get the house all clean and, and, and rush around because we're having friends over and we've got to have a meal. And we're having a meal for an hour and then we're going to play games for an hour and then we're going to go to bed. But the, the point was to spend Lazy time with friends, and uh, we we got to be the recipient of one of those this week. And what a blessed time just to sit and enjoy each other's company and enjoy each other's presence and get to know one another uh, better. I hope that you had time to do that. And and then this one was a hard one, and I want to remind you of it in case some of you forgot. Uh, But uh, the, the third thing that I asked you to do last week was to refuse the artificial urgency of technology for one evening. And uh, what we said is that, that technology creates all sorts of artificial urgency in our life, right? Like, like that thing dings, we get this email, we get a text, and like we are drawn to our phones like magnets or our tablets or our computers or whatever. And, and so uh, I challenge you just to let that go for an evening and uh, spend dedicated time doing something else, reading a book, conversation with a spouse. In fact, last night, Amy and I practiced this. Uh, we, our lives have been just, just totally crazy. And one of the things that I like to do is watch movies. And I, I just, uh, some of you like, are like, the book was better than the movie. I'm like, just let me watch the movie, right? I'm not going to read the book, you know. And so, uh, so, I, so I don't really read fiction. Uh, you know, the way that I get stories and narratives in my life are, are through film. And so one of the things that I like to do to relax is just watch a film and a good story unfold on the screen. And uh, so last night we were just tired. Our life has been so crazy and, uh, and, and we refused the artificial urgency of how this movie will just feed me and instead Amy and I just had a great conversation and went to bed early. It was great. Uh, we got lots of rest, had good conversation and we weren't tired because we watched this movie with too much violence and everything else anyway. So... Uh, so it was good, so we practiced it as well. So I hope that you did that, and I hope that your, your lives were enriched, but we 're not here to talk we 're not here today to talk about what we did last week we 're here to talk about how I believe that um, in our culture of becoming rich, we have also become utterly poor with relationships. We've also become utterly poor with relationships. Now, some of you are automatically saying, now, how can this be? Because I have 15 social networking accounts that can tell you otherwise, that I am more connected now than I have ever been. I, I, am, I, have, more, uh, I, am, I have more friendships now than I ever have because I have 1,000 friends on Facebook. Right, Uh, And so all this kind of stuff. So so some of you are like, how can we really be utterly poor in a culture where we seem to be so connected through these social networks? But here's what I want to say to you today. Let's not confuse social connection with authentic relationship. Now, some of you, that is worth the price that you paid to get in the door today, okay? Let's not, which was free. That was a joke. Very under the radar, Okay. (laughs) Now now, now let 's not confuse social connection for authentic relationship and and what here 's why in fact, one of the reasons I feel like we have become utterly poor in relationships in our culture is because we 've tried to do just that we 've tried to substitute all of these other things in for authentic relationship. We've tried to replace real relationship with social networks and digital forms of communication, and some of you have realized it doesn't work. And you're starved of relationship, regardless of what your profile says or how many text messages you get a day. Right? We have have tried to replace Real relationships with all these digital forms of of communication and digital forms of relationship. And as a culture, what we're finding out is that it simply does not work. It is not a replacement for real, authentic relationship. And so in our pursuit of becoming rich, we've become utterly poor in relationships. Now, the classic example of this is that we have... As a culture, now I'm making blanket statements, but I see this all the time. I see evidence of it all the time, is that as a culture, we have lost what is the appropriate form of communication. And we are under the illusion of connectedness. So so the reason that we're so connected and yet still starving is because we've not only tried to substitute this for this, but as a culture, we've lost what it means. And we've lost the, uh, the, the, the art of realizing what is the appropriate form of communication. I have this particular kind of message, and I have before me all kinds of options to communicate that message. I could post it to my wall and share it with the world. I could email it. I could write a letter. I could make a phone call. I could set up a meeting, tell them face-to-face. I could send them a direct message on Twitter. I could send them a fax. Come on, 1985 called, and they want their fax machine back. Okay? So classic examples of this. Couples have conflicts over text messages. <laughs> Come on. We've lost the appropriate form of communication. Man, I sent her a text and it was like, oh, it was only five miles long. And then she sent me back and it was like 10 miles long. And I was like, how am I supposed to understand that? And I was, I'm like, call her, you know, just call her. And, and work it out in five minutes rather than taking ten minutes to send a really long text messages. So couples have conflicts over text messages. This is the classic example that we have lost the appropriate form of communication in our lives, and our relationships are starving because of it. Or how about this? This is... So I'm going to, I'm going to get some amens on this one. How about this? That person that posts way too much information on their wall. Right? Like, you read it, and you're like, oh, I did not need to know that. <laughs> or, or even worse is when they post way too much information on your wall. <laughs> like, how's that rash on your butt? And you're like, what? That was in confidence, man. Now no, you're telling the whole world. And so you know, we've lo- the point is, we've lost the appropriate form of communication. And what it does, some people are really worried that in this kind of socially connected network that we're going to lose the art of real connection. Here's what I think. As we, become, as we go more and more into the, to the Twitter culture and the Facebook culture, real relationship and real connection will actually become more valuable. And in fact, that's what the scripture calls us to. And so the scripture doesn't make any statements about whether you should have a Facebook profile or not, but, but the scripture does say all kinds of things about being in authentic relationship with one another. And so what has happened is social networks have, well, actually, I'd like to make a statement that I think social networks are a good thing. I think they have a place and they can enhance real relationship, but they can't replace or be a substitute for that. Uh, and, and so let me tell you about some other ways that we've become utterly poor in relationships. We've, we've grown up in a culture that's very individualistic. It's very look out for number one, become rich at all costs, do whatever it takes. And oftentimes what that equals or the result of that is that we, we, we go about that pursuit, never considering the welfare of, the, of other people that might be in our path of, of that pursuit. And so, for example, you, you'll come across many high-profile people in high-profile jobs that lose their marriages because of the time or the stress or whatever that's required to make all that money at that particular job. And, and, uh, and it happens all over, but not just in high-profile jobs, where, where you're seeking the pursuit of rich at the expense, at a far greater expense, of relationships. Um, And so I would also encourage you to consider Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector in the first century. Being a tax collector meant being hated, uh, right? Like sometimes you read the scripture and you're like, why why are tax collectors always called sinners, right? And why are they so hated? I mean, I hate the IRS, but I mean that seems a little strong to call them a sinner. All this kind of stuff, right? I mean, it's kind of it's kind of a curious thing. Well, in the first culture, or in the first century culture, what it meant to be a tax collector was to work for Rome but not be, for, be from Rome. In other words, you're working for Roman rule, collecting their taxes, but in your hometown. So you're collecting taxes from all these people that you grew up with. You went to kindergarten with them, then you went to grade school, then you went to high school, and now you're, and, and Rome is hated all that time. They're like the, uh, the arch enemy, you know, and then they, then all of a sudden you start working for them. And so the tax collector in the first century was hated not only by their friends, but also by their family. And you might say, well, what is the motivation to be a tax collector if you would lose every valuable relationship in your life? It was a great paying job. Because you could collect as much as you want, wanted extra, and keep it. And Rome didn't care. And so you got all kinds of money for being a tax collector. So Zacchaeus, when we see him in his story in the Gospels, we see a broken man, void of any relationships, but, in, but very, very wealthy. Sometimes in our pursuit of being rich, we lose something that's far more valuable. That's the point that I'm trying to make. And in fact, it's it's actually tempting many times to to go down that route. Uh, Because there's some of you today that are working far too many hours at the expense of your relationships of your family. But your motivation for working so many hours is to take care of the ones that you love but you are losing them in your absence. Does that make sense? And so maybe what, maybe what the Lord wants to say to some of you today is that you just, need to, you just need to not work so much. You need to cut it off at 40 hours or 45 hours and start investing into the lives of the people that love you and that you love. Last week I said, are you willing to become just a little bit more financially poor if you would become utterly rich and with time? And that, this week I want to flip around that question. I want to say, are you willing to become just a, a little bit more financially poor to become utterly rich with relationships? Like, are you willing to say no to the overtime so that you can invest in the lives of, of your family or your friends or your loved ones? Now, I know, that there's, I know that there's ebb and flow. I know there are seasons in life where, like, the bills are coming and it's like, I have to do this in order to make it work. I know that. But make sure that it's for a season. And don't get caught in the cycle of seeing the big paycheck when, it, when the work comes at the expense of those other relationships. Okay? So we've become a culture not only poor on time, but poor on quality relationships. The book of James has great advice for us. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles there. Uh, James, I want to look at Chapter 5. There should be a Bible somewhere in your neighborhood uh, under the seats. If you brought your own Bible, you can turn there. The, it will be up on the screen as well. Uh, for those of you that use smartphones or tablets, if you go to your uh, Holy, your Bible app that's produced by YouVersion, uh, go to the live section. We're under there. We have sermon notes, and you can add your own notes, email them to yourself, keep a little log. It's kind of cool. Um, so, so for those of you that are digitally savvy... Uh, then I encourage you to do that. But, but James, um, what James does right at the end of his book, uh, which, by the way, is intensely practical. James, as a book, almost didn't even make it into the canon of the Bible. Uh, in other words, it almost wasn't a book of the Bible because it was so in your face and so intensely practical that people didn't like it. That when you read it, it kind it of, you, and you read it, and then you look at your life, and you're like, it, it just kind of it rubs you the wrong way, and so it can be intensely practical, That, and so much so that it almost didn't even make it into the biblical canon. But here it is. It's part of God's word, and uh, we have some really practical things for us in our communal life together. So I want to talk to you today about the currency of connection, the currency of connection, that we might become utterly rich with Relationship. Let's, uh, let's read 13 through 16, just a short passage here this morning. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, says this. If anyone among you, uh, is anyone among you in trouble, let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make them well. And the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, if you grew up in the church, you probably have heard this passage, but I want to kind of, I want to break it down a little bit just in, in how it relates to our communal life together. And verse 16 has the hinge, the all ever important hinge, the word, therefore, anytime you see the word in your Bible, therefore, you ought to pay attention. You ought to perk up. You ought to realize that this is really kind of like the bottom line. What the therefore is, is the result or the bottom line of what has gone on before. And so we've just read, James has been talking about, uh, the, um, He's been talking about prayer for the sick. He's been talking about celebrating with those who are happy. He's been talking about sins being forgiven. And then he cuts right to the chase. Therefore, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other, and the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, this this uh, subject of confession is, is never good. I mean, it's like, do we want the pastor to talk about tithing or confession? Tithing or confession? And you know, were like, uh, "Is there like a letter C?" You know, I mean, it's not. We don't. We don't want to talk about it. Uh, but but here we go. And, and some of you might say, "Well, well, I mean, I, I'm all about confessing, uh, but I just I just do all my confessing to God." And, and yet this passage says we ought to confess to one another. And so some of you are are, are wondering, what is the value, or what is the purpose? Or why does the scripture, this intensely practical book of the Bible, why does it tell me to confess to one another? Why do I have to do that? Well, well, in short, confession builds community. Confession builds community. When we confess our brokenness to another person, it creates a very strong bond with that person. And here's the reason why. If you're here today and you're struggling with something that is unconfessed, you are, under the, you are most likely under the impression that you are the only one that struggles with that. And you feel so alone, and you feel so isolated, and, and you're fearful that if you were ever to come out in the open, that everyone would look at you and say, and, and prove what you have thought, right, none of us struggle with that. That's your, that's your number one fear. And so what the, what the enemy does in our life is he whispers a lie in our ear over and over and over again that hides the, hides the secret and says, you are the only one that struggles with this. That's what the enemy whispers in your ear over and over and over again. And so we, are, we, we struggle with bringing it out in the open because of that fear. And the result is that we just all pretend like everything's okay. Right? Like, like I'm going to church, so i got to put on my church face. Church is a happy place, so I have to be happy. Right? And, and so we, we pretend like everything is okay because we've believed the lie that what we struggle with, only we struggle with it. The beauty of confession is this. That if you are the one confessing, number one, it breaks the power of the secret by bringing it out in the open. That just the act of confessing itself will weaken the grip that that thing has on you. And I don't know what that thing is. Uh, it may be something deep, like an addiction. It may be something, something else altogether. It may be maybe, may, maybe just bringing out in the open. I really struggle with insecurity. But whatever that is, is for as long as we hold it under, for as long as we we just have this thing going between us and God, and God already knows everything anyway, and so it seems pretty easy to confess to God, right? God, you already knew this, but let me bring it out in the open. That's easy, because he already knew. But for as long as we're holding it under and under the impression that we are the only ones that struggle with it, that thing has a tighter and tighter and tighter grip. Just the act of confessing it, bringing it out in the open, loosens that grip automatically. But here's the other beauty of confession. That person that you're confessing to just might say the words, me too. Do you know some of the most powerful words that you can ever hear from someone else are those two words. Me too. Man, I'm I'm like really struggling with this thing and and it's got a hold on me and and I've tried this and this and this. Me too. Let's walk through it together. Or you you might hear the opposite response. I used to struggle with that. But praise be to God, he's walked me through it. And let me share my journey with you and I'm going to walk through it with you. And so there's power, there's increased power in confessing, not just to God between me and God, but confessing to one another because it opens up, it it opens that situation up to all kinds of possibilities of what God might do in your life. You know, I used to struggle with that, but let me help you through it. I'm struggling too. Me too are some of the most powerful words you can ever hear. And the confession breaks the secret's power. And as long as you hold it under, as long as it stays unconfessed, and as long as you keep pretending like everything is okay, then that thing gets a tighter and tighter and tighter grip. And some of you are here today, and you're holding in a secret. And when I talk about that tight grip, you wouldn't say it out loud, but you're thinking to yourself, man, I know. I've been there. I am there. Maybe your next step today, maybe what God is is asking you to do and telling you to do today is to go to a trusted person and bring it out in the open and allow the victory and the resurrection power of the gospel to flow through your life because of that confession. Just by virtue of bringing out in the open will do all kinds of good toward victory. But we have to confess it to the right person. You have to confess it to someone you trust. You have to confess it to someone that you know isn't going to put you down or harm you. In other words, you have to confess it to a person that you are fully confident is, is going to be responsible with the information you give them. But I'm telling you, these sort of like, the illusion of openness that we have because of our social networks are such a fake imitation for real, authentic community and openness and confession. I mean, somebody might, might, might reveal something about how they're feeling when they're in a line at Target or whatever, and how, you know, they might reveal sort of their, their dirty nature, like, oh, I hate this person because they're taking too long. Though that's not real confession. I mean, these sort of like a confession on a Facebook wall is is not a confession. It's it's asking for something very in return that's very unhealthy. But real true connection, authentic community is is part of that picture is brought through confession. And so James tells us, therefore, after talking about the power of prayer, after talking about how sins are forgiven, after talking about shared joy, he says, therefore, confess to one another. It's a beautiful thing. But it's a difficult thing. It's much easier to talk about it than to actually do it. But confession creates a bond that simply cannot be recreated on a social network. And all of those things are just a cheap substitute for, real, for the real community that we're starved of so so James's, one of james 's instructions to us is confess to one another now the, the next part is uh, to pray for one another, confess your sins to each other, and pray for one another that you might be healed and in fact most of the, the passage that we talked about, is talking about prayer, prayer for those who are, who are sick, pray for those who are uh, in trouble. If any among, Is anyone among you in trouble? Then pray. Is, is anyone sick? Then pray and bring the elders of the church together. And, and so scripture is very clear, particularly in this passage, that we ought to, to pray for one another. And this passage in particular gives us some really powerful words, some really powerful phrases. It says, a prayer offered up in faith will make them well. That's a powerful thing. And and then it says... The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. These are strong words. And, and probably many of you have, an op- have, have something that has happened in your life that would maybe bring a tinge of doubt to these words. And I don't have time to sort of unpack all, the, all the, what's, what's happening here. But, but the, the point is that this passage in, relate, in relation to prayer is very direct, very strong. As a community, we ought to be a praying people. We ought to pray for one another. And in fact, that's kind of the socially acceptable thing to do in the church, isn't it? Like maybe someone comes to you and confesses. The socially accepted thing to do. Or someone says, man, I'm really going through a hard time. Or or someone says, I I really need prayer for this. The socially acceptable thing in church is to simply say, oh man, I'll pray for you. I have a very simple question for you this morning. Do you? Do you? Me neither. Not all the time. And so, when it comes to prayer and, and, and establishing a community of prayer, I have one very simple challenge for us this morning. And that is to churn I'll pray for you into let's pray. Isn't that, I mean, that's simple. Yeah, but we're in Starbucks. It's all good. Let's pray. I mean, we're in Old Town. And New Westfest is going on. It's loud. And there's people dressed really weird. What are they going to think of us? It's all good. Let's pray. Like, like I I wonder, I wonder how our, our community life together would be different. If we would simply, every time that we were tempted to say, I'll pray for you, why don't we just say, Let's pray and take a minute? Two minutes, three minutes, ten minutes, however long it takes to really pray for that person in that situation. Man, I'm struggling here. Let's pray. Man, i got to confess this. Let's pray for God's victory in your life. I mean, that's a powerful thing to do. And one of the things that I'm committed to do as a pastor. Because probably the words, some of the words that I say the most often are, I'll pray for you. And if I'm just totally candid and totally upfront, front, I, I don't always remember to pray for you like I promised. That sucks, I know. But I'm not perfect. I'm a regular guy like you guys are. And So my commitment is to turn these words of I'll pray for you into let's pray. Where our first response is to pray for someone that reveals a need. And so, well, what also happens is, you know, we're talking about community and this currency of connection. Man, when you pray with somebody, you hear their heart. And, and there, there are, there are, there's a possibility that you could know for someone for years and not really hear their heart until you pray with them. And you realize, man, what's important to them. That also, just like confession, it creates this community that enriches our lives far more than the mighty dollar ever could. Are you with me? We have got to redefine rich and say that I want to be rich with time, that I'm honoring Sabbath in my life. And I want to be rich with community so that that the relationships in my life are rich and close and valuable to me far more valuable than a dollar ever could be. So we have to pray for one another. And then I love this part. It's, it's really, it, I mean, this passage is like, is, is anyone in trouble? Is anyone sick? Is, you know, confession? It's, I mean, it's kind of a heavy passage, but there's one little thing stuck in here. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs and let them celebrate. You know what part of being enriched with community is, is celebrating with one another too. Um, just as in those really difficult times, we need someone to lift us up in prayer. We need someone to come to us and say, let's pray. The same is true when, when something goes really well. And something happens just right, and God proves himself to be faithful, and God aligns all the details of, of a particular situation, or God provides healing or reconciliation, and our hearts are leaping with joy for what God has done. We have got to celebrate, and that's part of what baptism is, right? We bring people up here and allow them some time to share their testimony so that we can celebrate, Right? I mean, if you didn't know who anybody was and we just dunked them, you would feel forced to clap. But after you're introduced to them and you hear their story about what God has done, you hear their testimony, and they come up out of the water, we can't help but clap, right, community? I mean, that's how it is. And so we want to celebrate together. There is, Listen, joy shared is joy multiplied. Isn't that true? Some of you are like, you've got this joy about something going on, and you're like, I just got to tell somebody. And so you call your best friend, you call your mom, you put it on your Facebook wall, you know, all these kinds of things. And you're like, I just got to tell somebody because it's joy that is shared is joy multiplied. And here's what also what happens. Sometimes we're having a really hard time. and Sometimes we do have a hard time celebrating the good in other people's lives because we are a culture that is so fiercely independent. We are so bent toward looking out for number one, for ourselves, that sometimes it can be difficult for us to even celebrate the good in someone else's life. But let me, let me tell you this. If you're going through a difficult time, and you hear about the good things that God is doing in someone else's life, shared joy eases pain. Shared joy eases pain. And it also widens perspective. You may be, what happens in times of trouble is that we tend to dig ourselves in a hole so that we lose our perspective. We don't don't see the world as it really is. We don't see God as he really is. We, We see with tunneled vision in the midst of trouble. And what happens is when someone comes to us and says, guess what God did? guess what happened? And they they want to share, they want you to share in their joy and their celebration. What that does is it widens our perspective that if we were dug in our own hole of trouble and despair, we might be tempted to say that God isn't good, that God isn't present, that God doesn't care. But if we are in the midst of that hole and we hear about someone else's joy, someone else's grace received, someone else's celebration, it widens our perspective and says God is in fact good. And again, Gives us confidence that he's working in the midst of my difficulty, in the midst of my valley, in the midst of the hole that I'm in that I never thought I would get out. If I can share joy, it broadens my perspective and boosts my faith and allows me to say that God is indeed faithful. God is indeed good. God does indeed care. It broadens our perspective. So shared joy. So, joy that is shared is not only multiplied, but it eases our pain and it broadens our perspective. So, I want to encourage you today if you are in the midst of trouble and someone comes to you with a celebration, celebrate with them and allow God to work through that. Because James gives us very practical, very practical. He doesn't explain things, he just gives them to us in a punch. If you're in trouble, let's pray. If anyone's happy, let's let's sing songs of praise and celebration. Let's share each other's joy.